Gentlemen, we have reached the time we have all been looking for. We are about to engage in the most serious business ever undertaken by man, and no one can tell who will come out of it. Gentlemen, may God be with you. Major General Adelbert Cronkite, 80th Division, AEF, Commanding, Meurs Argonne, 25th September, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 51, Mers Argonne, the most serious business. Let's start with a quick admin note. Big shout out to listener Doron, our newest patron of the BFWWP on Patreon. Thank you so much, and I hope I pronounced your name correctly. Also, many thanks to listeners Charles and Stephen for their generous donations through PayPal. I am greatly appreciative of your generosity, and to Stephen, thanks for the baffle advice. I hope you saw what I did there. I I couldn't help it. Ongoing donations through Patreon and one-time donations through PayPal help the podcast immensely. Podcasts are not free. Libsyn demands that I pay them a monthly fee to get these episodes out there. I mean, can you believe that? So any donations go towards the servers, keeping the website up, where I'm slowly putting up the pictures from my August trip to France, and to the acquiring of new research materials for episodes. If you enjoy the show and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron through Patreon. Patrons there will have early access to episodes as well as access to the transcripts used to create the episode. The transcripts contain detailed bibliographies of the books, articles, and other sources I use to help put these narratives together. Patrons also have other perks, such as submitting a question that I'll research and answer to the best of my ability, and the possibility of naming a battle you'd like to hear covered on the show. Take a moment and check it out at www.patreon.com backslash Battles of the First World War podcast. One-time donations also help just as much. So if ongoing patronage is not an option, no worries. A PayPal link on firstworldwarpodcast.com will take you step-by-step through the process. And of course, if neither of the above are an option for you at this time, you can still greatly help the BFWWP by submitting a review on iTunes. These help a lot. And last I checked, we were at 214 reviews. It's great, and I love it. Thank you, everyone. All right, thanks for letting me do my administrative bit right now. So that's all done. So let's go ahead, let's get into the old front line. At 23.30 hours, On the 25th of September, 1918, long-range artillery manned by American and French gun crews opened up on their beleaguered German enemy. The guns aimed at all known routes, bottlenecks, and intersections behind the German lines 
from the western edge of the Argonne Forest all the way east to the River Meuse. German rear areas were being targeted for destruction or, at the minimum, disruption. Allied gas shells began blanketing the front lines in the Meuse Valley between the river and the Argonne, creating a zone of increasing danger and discomfort as German troops had to don protective masks and stand to. American doughboys and assembly areas seem to have been surprised by the sudden blasting of the guns. Corporal Chester Baker of the 28th Division, a Pennsylvania National Guard unit now federalized for the war, was getting some sleep when, quote, we were awakened about midnight to all hell breaking loose. Our own artillery had commenced the battle without bothering to warn us. Some of the new recruits got the wind up temporarily, but soon quieted down. I must confess, even us old vets of the Marne and the Vell campaigns were rattled by the suddenness of the assault, end quote. That passage comes to us from Douglas Mastriano's excellent work, Thunder in the Argonne, a new history of America's greatest battle. At 0230 on the 26th of September, the full complement of 2,775 French and American guns unleashed hell on the German army facing them. Now the guns from the ubiquitous French-made 75s to 12, 14, and 16-inch naval guns mounted on railway carriages pummeled the enemy and his fortifications. The storm and roar were apocalyptic to the point where famed American pilot Eddie Rickenbacker saw a, quote, solid belt of flashes lighting up the world. A German soldier in the Argonne later recorded, quote, coming from all directions, the howling, suddenly above, suddenly below, it is like meeting your fate with death himself. The sky jerks around while the soil shudders. The tumult penetrates your ears, end quote. This was it. After months of preparation, training, and battle, the American Expeditionary Force was launching the massive and independent offensive it had been waiting for. Starting on the 26th of September, the Americans were launching what would become a 47-day battle that would play its part in the neatly, if not completely accurately named 100 Days Offensive in which the Allies successively hit the Germans and began rupturing their lines. The Americans launching themselves into the Meuse-Argonne was the first of the Allied Supreme Commander Marshal Ferdinand Foch's strikes at the Germans. Supporting them in the Champagne region would be the French Fourth Army, also attacking. Over the next three days following the American and French attack, three more major Allied offensives would be launched. Two British armies would attack at Cambrai. The Belgians would lead an attack between the coast and the River Lys. And a Franco-British force would attack north of the Somme. The end goal of the American First Army was the seizure of the Sedan-Mézier railways, the very lifeline that was keeping German troops in the war on the Western Front. Physical capture of these rail hubs, or at least putting them under artillery fire would mean Germany and its fighting withdrawal would be finished. Sedan lay 35 miles behind the current front line. 
as the massive battles of the previous months had shown, a 35-mile advance was not out of the question. It would be a stretch for sure, but it could potentially be done. The problem here was that within the 35-mile distance was a 10-mile thick belt of trench lines, barbed wire fields, and carefully sighted defensive positions. The Germans had known for years how important Sedan was, and that the lines of the Verdun salient were a concern. Knowing they weren't going anywhere for a long time, German engineers had taken their time to construct a formidable defense zone that would see any attacker's efforts end in nothing but corpses. The Meuse-Argonne region is defined by the Argonne Forest in the west to the left bank of the river Meuse on the right. Overall, the area is French farm country, hilly with small forests, even smaller villages where in pre-war days residents were likely counted in scores, and fields upon fields of farmland. It is an area of stunning beauty, and today it is an area with a bucolic tranquility that is becoming increasingly hard to find in the world. By the autumn of 1918, the Germans had long since turned the entire region into one great defense area. Ed Langle, in his book, To Conquer Hell, writes that, quote, topographically, it resembled a funnel, end quote. The American-held front line ran roughly from just north of Vienne-le-Chateau on the western edge of the Argonne through the forest to the murdered hill named the Butte du Vauquois to the bank of the Meuse itself. Going by Mr. Langle's terms, the Americans would be advancing up the spout of the funnel. The immediate front line was the expected First World War scene of trenches, barbed wire, shell holes, and bones. In the Argonne Forest, a thick blanket of trees which itself sits on a plateau between the River Air to the east and the River N to the west, the front line sat in a swath of utterly destroyed tree trunks, shell holes, and mine craters. The German lines here were called the first position. As the trench line snaked out from the forest, across swampy ground overlooked by low hills and valleys, the German name of the front line changed to the Wiesenschlankenstellung. Have fun repeating that. Attached to the Wiesenschlanken line, the Hagenstellung branched off and ran parallel to the former from just north of Montfaucon to the Meuse. The Wiesenschlanken and Hagen lines were thinly manned and were meant to be quickly given up as part of a defense in-depth strategy. Behind this ground, two miles to the north, runs another line of hills and valleys in whose center sits the Butte de Montfaucon, an 1,100-foot hill that dominates the area for kilometers around. Montfaucon means Falcon Hill in French, and a village had sat on that hill since at least the Middle Ages. In 1918, the ruins of medieval Montfaucon sat in a frozen agony, highlighted by the ruins of its ancient church. French artillery had long since decimated the village, and the Germans were using many of its structures, including the church, to house and hide observation posts. Montfaucon, where today stands a 180-foot-tall tower of breathtaking beauty, 
with breathtaking views would be a crucial objective to any advance from the current front lines. On Montfaucon's line of hills, the Germans had sighted and dug in their second position, two parallel lines of trench systems running through the Meuse Valley known as the etzel giselher Stellung. This was a heavily defended line, and German soldiers were not to retreat from their positions. Four miles to the north of that lay the strongest defensive belt, named the Kriemhilde Stellung. This was the third position. The Kriemhilde Stellung was part of the Hindenburg Line, and so parallel trench systems ran from the area of the village of Grand Pre, where the river Air turned west and bordered the northern edge of the Argonne, to the Bois du Romagne, Romagne village itself, the Cunel Heights, and on to Brieux on the Meuse. The fourth position was five miles behind the Kriemhilde lines. Named the Freie Stellung, it ran from Busancy to Dansemeuse. The Freie line was the freakout line. It wasn't even set to be completed until sometime in 1919. If the Americans made it all the way up here, the German army would be in massive trouble. From the front line to the rear of the Kriemhilde line, the distance was some 15 kilometers. The main part of the German army's defenses was the machine gun and its emplacement in countless machine gun nests. These nests were on every hill, every ridge, in every ravine, at every trail bend, along every road, in every ruined village and house. These nests had been sighted to catch advancing troops from the flanks, and each machine gun supported the nest next to them. Grenadiers and mortarmen would add to the maelstrom. In front of every trench line lay thick belts of barbed wire. Oncoming enemy troops would be funneled into prepared kill zones where they would be slaughtered. Supporting the American 1st Army on the western or left flank would be the French 4th Army, under General Henri Gros, operating in the Champagne just west of the River Aisne and the Argonne Forest. The French 4th Army will be a part of our episodes because American troops would be attached or assigned to it throughout the Meuse-Argonne campaign, and so its operations will be included as part of the battle. The American 1st Army would be attacking across a 30-kilometer-wide front with nine divisions, separated by threes into three corps. Black Jack Pershing had big plans for his men. Starting at 0530 that morning of the 26th, those three corps would break through three German positions and advance 16 kilometers. The Americans would then link up with the French 4th Army on their left and cut off the Argonne Forest. In the offensive second part, to start on the 27th of September, the same divisions would advance another 16 kilometers to establish a line running Stonnet to Le Chêne. The third part would then be initiated, where the French 17th Corps on the right bank of the Meuse would launch attacks set to clear the Meuse Heights. The last part of Pershing's plan was to have a joint Franco-American attack on Sedan and Mézier. Given that five of the nine attacking American divisions had effectively no combat experience, 
Pershing's plan was asking for a lot. From the western edge of the Aragon, on through the forest and to the Butte du Vauquois, the U.S. 1st Corps would be attacking. 1st Corps, under the command of Major General Hunter Liggett, was tasked with clearing the Aragon Forest and attacking down the valley of the River Air along the eastern edge of the forest. The 77th Division, on the Corps' left, was tasked with fixing the enemy in place in the Argonne and pushing them out while the other two divisions raced to cut off the entire forest at Grand Pré to the north. The 28th Division would be clearing the eastern portion of the forest and following the air and would be assisted by the 35th Division. The 35th Division would also be clearing the Butte du Vauquois. In the center of the American attack front, 5th Corps, commanded by Major General George Cameron, was to seize the dominating Montfaucon along with other high ground on the Etzel-Giselhaer line. Cameron had three green divisions with which to carry out his mission. From left to right, they were the 91st, the 37th, and the 79th Divisions. 5th Corps had the hardest job, as the seizure of Montfaucon would require a frontal assault across the German defensive preparations we just talked about. On the right, from Montfaucon to the Meuse, Major General Robert Bullard's 3rd Corps would ram its way through the Meuse Valley and clear out the German army all the way to the village of Brieux-sur-Meuse. Where divisional sectors came up against the Meuse, the units would face east along the bank to protect against potential river crossings by the enemy. Bullard would have one veteran division, the 4th, and two green divisions, the 80th and the 33rd, to execute his plan. The 4th Division would split off part of its force to help encircle Montfaucon. Across the wide Meuse, with its canal and floodplain that presented further obstacles for any potential river crossing, the French 17th Corps would initiate artillery duels and strong raids to distract the Germans and hold those enemy forces in place there. The American plan was not without its faults. First of all, there was the fact that five of the nine attacking divisions had effectively zero combat experience. Of this, realistically, there was little Pershing and the AEF could do. Another fault was that some of those divisions had been given a particularly tough job to do, like the 79th with Montfaucon as its objective. The attacking corps had no main effort amongst them. Pershing was very much a member of the Offensive à Outrance Club, offensive to the limit, or the guts and glory school of thought, as the French had been in 1914. While the French had long since abandoned this idea on the battlefield, amid the blood and bones of their sons, Pershing and his staff had not been disabused of it. So, all of the corps were to break through and smash the enemy aside. And if there was any focus, it was to take Montfaucon. This type of thinking pointed to the amateurish staff work at Corps and First Army headquarters that had the exhausted but seasoned British and French rolling their eyes in frustration. To bring up the matter of Montfaucon, this particular objective was split between two corps. Another amateurish mistake 
that veteran planners would immediately have corrected. For anyone new to all this talk of cores and objectives, here's the problem. Montfaucon is a butte that would be assaulted frontally by the 79th Division, which was part of 5th Corps, and formed that corps' right flank. On the left of the 79th, the 37th Division would be in support of the Montfaucon operation. Cool, so far. The 79th and the 37th are in the same corps. And so ideally, sharing information between the divisions could be done on the ground and through 5th Corps headquarters. Now, on the right of the 79th Division was the 4th Division. The 4th Division would also be supporting the Montfaucon operation, but it belonged to 3rd Corps. The AEF 1st Army and Corps staffs had decided to maintain strict boundary sectors as the divisions advanced in order to make up for the inexperience of the attacking troops. This meant that 4th Division couldn't just spill over into the 79th sector to help if it was necessary, and any communication between 4th and 79th would have to be done from 3rd Corps to 5th Corps and vice versa. In the chaos and confusion of combat, with inexperienced staffs as well, splitting the objective between two corps was not a wise move. Imagine a game of telephone, but with bombs and bullets and a supercharged office like you can't even imagine. Pershing's ambitions for the offensive were also stretching reality. Blackjack wanted surprise and speed. We'll talk about surprise here shortly, but speed would be a major issue. There just weren't enough roads in the area, and the ones that hadn't been plowed by four years' worth of shells were mud pits. The rest of the land was largely devastated as well, and the men marching over it were for the most part new to the business of modern industrial warfare. Pershing's plan had echoes of General Sir Douglas Haig's plans for the Somme well over two years prior. And we all know how that went. Pershing expected an advance of 10 miles on the first day. Ever the Eeyore of the Western Front, French Army Commander General Philippe Pétain told Blackjack he'd be lucky if he made it to Montfaucon by the time winter arrived. His caution wasn't without reason. Lucky for the Americans was that the German army was a sinewy walking corpse at this time, although one still sentient enough to hand out death prodigiously. The German army was beset with more problems by late September of 1918 than can be discussed here with the attention they deserve. In very broad strokes, Germany itself was collapsing, as was the army in the field. Allied pressure was relentless, and the things were looking bleaker and bleaker for the future of that country. More locally, the AEF's attack was to come at the dividing line between the 3rd and 5th German armies. This dividing line was near the Butte de Vauquois, and it also happened to be the dividing line between two army groups as well. To further put the Germans off to a bad start, the German 5th Army had received a new commander on the 22nd of September, one General de Cavalerie Georg von der Marwitz. The staff changes that resulted 
from this change of command also meant that key intelligence reports coming in reporting ominous buildup signs opposite German lines went unread. Hi, yes. Now, what about the man General von der Marwitz replaced? Why, of course, it was none other than General Max Karl Wilhelm von Galwitz. Yes, our boy von Galwitz is here for yet another Western Front battle. Von Galwitz had been in command of the 5th Army and Army Detachment C, and they would now both come under command of him under Army Group Galwitz. As we have known from Verdun, the Somme, and Seychelles, von Galwitz was no joke. He was a resourceful and determined fighter. Von Galwitz received intelligence warning of an American attack to come on the 25th of September, but having just weathered the Saint-Miel battle, he was sure the Meuse attack would be a feint. The American enemy really wanted to take Metz, and everything else was a distraction. So the Americans did accomplish an amazing feat. They got most of the surprise part to go their way. The Saint-Miel offensive hadn't yet concluded when divisions were picking up all of their baggage and making the 60-kilometer trek up to the Meuse-Argonne. Under the direction of a then-Colonel George C. Marshall, between the 15th and the 25th of September, nearly 600,000 American and French troops moved into the Meuse Valley over three terribly inadequate roads. At the same time, the AEF First Army transferred out some 225,000 French soldiers. It was really remarkable that the inexperienced Americans had completed one major operation, closed it down, and immediately shuttled their doughboys to a new battlefront. They did all this without the Germans ever really knowing it. The Germans noticed the inevitable buildup of enemy troops and knew something was on the way for sure, but they had no real knowledge of what was about to come their way. French soldiers manning the front lines in the Argonne remained in their trenches until the last possible moment, and American intelligence patrols went out into no man's land wearing French overcoats to keep up the charade that nothing was happening in these parts. Let's go back now to the American and French bombardment, which continued churning the German lines and positions for hours. It was nearing 0530 when the American doughboys would go over the top. By that time, the guns had already fired more shells than had been fired by the Union Army in the U.S. Civil War during that war's long four terrible years. Captain George Malmstrom of the 131st Infantry, 33rd Division, later recalled, quote, The day was just breaking, and the sky was obscured by a heavy fog which hung over the valley of the Meuse. The white and black bursts of shrapnel could be seen for miles along the edge of the fog bank, which was intensified by smoke shells. Thermite shells threw their awful flares of flames in all directions. Here and there, the ground heaved upward in geysers of earth as the heavies exploded, end quote. West of the Argonne, the French 4th Army would be striking at the Germans in the Champagne, looking to clear the land up to the River Aisne. Three American corps would be attacking from the western end of the Argonne and on east until the Meuse itself. Across that river, the French would harass the Germans and draw their fire away from the Americans. 
Our focus over the next few episodes will be the three American Infantry Corps, the French on the right bank, and then the French Fourth Army. It was now 0530. From the blasted belt of shattered trees on the southern end of the Argonne and on through the shell holes and devastation of the Meuse Valley, rifle bolts chambered and bayonets clicked into place. Thousands of doughboys stood in their water-filled trenches and shell holes, and at the sound of their officers' whistles, they were up and into the mist. The most serious business was at hand. The heavy fog had kept the powdered smoke down, and as morning began to lighten, I found myself, with my striker and my two runners, adrift in a blind world of whiteness and noise, groping over something like the surface of the moon. Captain W. K. Rainsford of the 307th Infantry Regiment remembered as he and the rest of the 77th Division headed into the Forêt d'Argonne. One literally could not see two yards, and everywhere the ground rose into bare pinnacles and ridges or descended into bottomless chasms, half filled with rusted tangles of wire. Deep, half-ruined trenches appeared without system or sequence, usually impossible of crossing, bare splintered trees, occasional derelict skeletons of men, thickets of gorse, and everywhere the piles of rusted wire. It looked as though it had taken root there among the iron chevaux de frise and had grown, and it was so heavy that only the longest-handled cutters would bite through it. There seemed to be very little rifle fire going on, and the shelling was still almost all in front and growing more distant. I remember trying to light a pipe, but the tobacco was so saturated with powder smoke and gas that it was impossible. At the end of an hour's time, I had collected two squads of infantry with a few engineers, and together we steered on by compass over the seemingly limitless desolation. All right, so we're going to leave it here for right now. Next episode, we'll be picking it up with the 77th Division and the rest of the First Corps as they push to clear the Argonne Forest and push up the River Air Valley. We'll be back just as soon as we can. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or holler at me on the Twitter at at WW1podcast. Check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook and definitely Check out the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com. Again, I'm slowly getting all the photos of my August trip to the Western Front posted. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.